There are many fronts in the argument against the existence of a god or gods and veracity of religious narratives. Some familiar approaches are to critique the philosophical underpinnings of religious ideology or to make a case from the perspective of scientific evidence and the physical laws of reality. The book we're looking at today, Inventing God, Psychology of Belief, and the Rise of Secular Spirituality by John Mills, argues from the perspective of psychology and posits that God is a psychological creation signifying ultimate ideality. In other words, He is the ultimate wish fulfillment, the forgiving all-powerful Father you always wanted, the absolution of all your fears, the antidote to death. Mills writes that the conception of God is the manifestation of humanity's denial and response to to natural deprivation. Dr. John Mills is a philosopher, psychoanalyst, and clinical psychologist. He is professor of psychology and psychoanalysis at the Adler Graduate Professional School in Toronto, and is the author of many books in philosophy, psychoanalysis, and psychology. Recipient of many awards for his scholarship, he received the Otto Weininger Memorial Award for Lifetime Achievement in 2015, given by the Canadian Psychological Association. He runs a mental health corporation in Ontario, Canada, and he is here with me today to tell us more about his book. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Secularism. I'm the new host of the channel, Carrie Lynn Evans, and today we'll be talking to Dr. John Mills about his new book, Inventing God, Psychology of Belief and the Rise of Secular Spirituality. John, thank you so much for for joining us. Thank you for having me. So I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Well, yes, um, I guess uh, by by trade or by profession, I I make my living as a psychologist. Uh, But um, I'm also um, a philosopher, having earned a Ph.D., and, and that's in that field, as well as a, a board-certified psychoanalyst. And um, I'm also a professor at um, a graduate program in uh, Toronto. And I, I run a mental health corporation in Ontario, which uh, is, is my um, you know, main, main profession, but helps me subsidize my scholarship as well. <laughs> Sounds good. How did you end up in your field? Uh, well, um, I think like anything else, uh, we are ultimately unconsciously drawn to why we go into a particular discipline. Um, so at my, in my youth, uh, I think I felt the need to go into psychology because I wanted to help people only, only to realize I was there for my own selfish motives. Uh, <laughs> to understand my myself and um and that led me into um uh, you know more of a love of knowledge and i ended up um going into philosophy after that and um uh, not securing an academic job um given how difficult uh, the field is to get employed uh, um, as a in philosophy I, I fell back on my original, um, you know, training, and that's where we're at today. Well, it sounds like a good mix. So, uh, so yeah, my next question for you then is, how did you end up coming to write this book in particular? Well, again, I, I believe that these things are ultimately psychologically motivated. Um, it wasn't something that I deliberately thought I was going to do at first, but... Um, uh, having my own uh, personal experiences um, growing up, um, I was, um, you know, I was raised uh, as a Christian, uh, and so also gravitated toward um, youth groups in my teens as as a way around the church and a way of connecting with my peers. Right. Um, but by the time. Um, by the time I, I would say reached the age of reason, <laughs> uh, the the whole God uh, posit started to fall apart on me, and um, I would say I spent most of my my twenties as an agnostic, and then um, I realized that I just couldn't uh, sit on the fence any longer. Um, 
and so I, uh, I think when I went into my, my philosophy PhD studies is when I really started to come to terms with, um, with this issue more head on. And, um, uh, yet at the same time, um, I feel and felt, uh, internally divided because on one hand, I think that there's a, a primal dimension to us that seeks out certain types of spiritual experiences, if we want to call it that. Um, but what do you do when you can't buy into the, the religious doctrine that's grafted on our own internal um, needs or pulsions? Um, so I think... Um, I, that's why I gravitated toward metaphysics. Uh, uh, probably is a substitute for religion, unconsciously, and and through that, um, I decided um, I really need to take a, a long look at the matter, and, and started to um, think that I'm going to then address this as a more you know philosophical topic, and, and which led to um, eventually writing the book. Excellent. Yeah, I can uh, I can identify with a lot of those same uh, feelings. I grew up in a religious family as well, and was also of the proclivity to just not really buy it. So uh, so yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. So um, in your book, uh, you you begin by being concerned to differentiate between the critique of religion as a social practice and the questioning of the existence of a god or god. So do you want to just outline for our audience that difference there? Well, yes, I think um, uh, I'm not so much interested in, in the, the question of religion as I am in, in the concept of God. And I don't think the two are the same, even though it's easy for, I think, for people to conflate them. But I also don't want to um, ontologically separate the two. For instance, um, um, the question or the predication of God can be entirely different from a religious practice. Uh, however, most religious practices or faiths or uh, organized, um, you know, modes of religious being, um, particularly in the monotheisms, necessarily have to have a godhead. Um, but uh, there are other forms of religions that, that um, don't necessarily have a god. I mean, certain aspects of Buddhism or Shinto or other, other types of um, non-monotheistic Abrahamic religions. So I like to separate the two, at least categorically. And, and the book um, is more about the ontological question of, of God's existence, uh, whatever, however we want to define what, what that is. Yes. Excellent. And you mentioned that the, um, in your opinion, that the current body of atheist literature tends to overlook... Um, uh, the psychological aspects that give rise to people's sensation of a need for God. Yes, if you uh, if you read within the last um, you know decade or so um, the uh, the new atheism literature, which really hit you know with the trade presses hit uh, the public um, uh, in a wave. Um, uh, with Richard Dawkins and you know, Sam Harris and Daniel Dennett and Christopher, Christopher. Hitchens. <laughs> exactly. Um, even though there's very fine arguments um, and a consciousness raising aspect uh, to this, if you, if you read the work, uh, really there's no engagement with the psychological dimensions. And so um, I felt... Um, I felt that illuminating the, you know, the internal uh, psychodynamic parameters of the need or wish to believe was lacking, and I, that's why I feel I have something novel to contribute to the discourse. Excellent. Okay, and you also comment that um, you feel that scholarly religious studies often take God's existent for, existence for granted rather than attempting to grapple with how an argument could be credibly made. Uh, in Chapter 1, you address the notion of God as a metaphysical question and lay out your arguments for why, as you put it, the God posit is a failed hypothesis. 
Can you uh, explain that term a little more, perhaps? Well, um, yeah, it's it's a it's a complex matter. So um, the thought that uh, well, I, I was struck by the the theological literature and the you know the philosophy of religion literature, where we can simply presume the very thing in question in, in all of our writings, and and so. Uh, in my in my uh, research, at least, um, it seems like even questioning whether or not we can predicate God stopped with um, with uh, you know Saint Thomas Aquinas, um, and so in his uh, Summa Theologiae is where he sets out certain types of arguments um, for the existence of God, and then goes about to try to argue for that matter. Um, it's as if uh, the religious um, uh, institutions, academics, uh, theology, uh, have uh, just presumed the very thing that um, one really has uh, the burden to prove. And, and so I, I, I want to revisit that uh, age-old uh, medieval, uh, where the question stopped uh, about a thousand years ago, and, and start with basics. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, you also get into the question of um, how various religions have understood the, quote, person of God. And you suggest that these interpretations arise in part from their unique context and the influence of their unique environmental stressors. Well, yes, the, the notion the notion of that God is a person is very... Um, uh, well, it's, it's, it's very monotheistic, but it, it's typically Christian. And, um, uh, but, but I should back up, you know, the, the whole, the whole, what sets the whole stage for any discussion on God is how we want to define God. And, and um, often, you know, often we can get off on the wrong, on the wrong foot or we won't be on the right page if we don't agree to, a uh, operational definition of what we mean by God. And, and so, um, for simplicity's sake, uh, it seems that most of the monotheistic religions would want to endorse God as a, a supreme being and um, supreme agent and creator of the universe that is a supra-personal, uh, trans-subjective, um, supernatural entity and um, uh, and then there are certain elements that get tacked onto that, such as omni perfections, omni attributes, and things like this. Uh, and, and one of them uh, is that that God must be not an impersonal force or source or entity, but a personal one. And and we see that in you know in all, particularly the Christian traditions. Um, so even, you know, from, uh, you know, um, Augustine to uh, Aquinas to Anselm to uh, Calvin and to contemporaries uh, such as Alvin Plantinga, um, Swinburne, things like people like this in the field of philosophy. So um, if if one doesn't want to buy into that discourse, then we're talking about God in a different way. For instance, um uh, you know, people can uh, define God uh, in very relativistic ways. I mean, to such a degree that God becomes whatever one wants it to be. And that I just really don't see that as um, uh, the same kind of uh, definition that most people, meaning the, that the masses uh, view as God. I mean, God has to be a person in their mind or a personhood, or an agent, um, because um, why would we worship an impersonal force in the cosmos? Um, and uh, however, there are people like, um, uh, you know, Bentley Hart, uh, who um, wants, or Karen Armstrong, who want to uh, look at God as being itself. Well, um when you look at God as being or in, in a naturalized way, um, then to me, that's really not God. 
I mean, it, it doesn't have the same uh, level of um, exaltation. Uh, and, and so uh, if, you know, it depends upon who my interlocker is or who I'm discoursing with, um, if we agree, if we can agree upon a certain way of viewing God, it usually helps in the discussion. But but I would say that p- the pedestrian notion that most people think of is is God is a, a supernatural, um, you know, ontological uh, being that that has brought the um, the universe and, and existence into being. Yes, that's been my experience as well. That it's definitely um, promoted that the notion of God is a very personal one. You're encouraged to have a personal relationship with God. This is the kind of language that's used. Um, but I think also that that stems from Jesus himself in the Bible. I think he encouraged thinking of God the Father in a very personal way. Um, so when you put it in the light of, the, of these uh, psychological factors that you, that you uh, outline in your book, um, it makes a lot of sense why that would appeal to people. And I think, you know, why it would make the religion so attractive to people, which gave it longevity, right? So, um, yeah, very interesting to look at it from the psychological perspective. In Chapter 3, you first tackle the effects of the positive representations of God, um, such as, as an idealized wish fulfillment, and how these ideas affect people psychologically. Uh, for instance, how the notion defends itself from critical analysis and how it can be used on a broader institutional level as a lever of power. Well, cl- clearly, um, you know, God representations are are multiple, and they are very idiosyncratic in, in many ways to the person uh, who, um, or the believer who is in relation to their own internal relationship to that internalized representation. And so um, what representations really are, 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 you know, images and introjects and emotional properties that are, you know, internalized in us from very, you know, ever since we're basically uh, born and, and become organized uh, psychically and, and typically on unconscious uh, semiotic and um, socio-symbolic and emotional levels. Uh, and the, the longer, of course, we live and experience the world, we, we will incorporate and internalize more and more representations. Um, we first must um, assume that the most um, emotionally dominant and important types of, of internalized uh, representations are based upon our, our parents or their surrogates. And hence, they become the the exemplary uh, prototypes or models by which we then would uh, construct broader so- social representations. Um, meaning by that, that you know, how do we relate to um, certain images, certain idealities, uh, certain values, um, certain feeling states that we place into um, an internalized uh, object. And and so these, for many people, of course, um, in their upbringing and their uh, education, um, the notion of God as a, as a uh, object representation is supposed to be um, an idealized one, a positive one. It, it signifies um, what we would like there to be, and that is um, a perfect, loving, benevolent, beneficent, um, uh, you know, creator, so to speak. Uh, You know, uh, in many ways, this is kind of like what a small child wishes or feels toward their parents, you know, is that, uh, you know, my mother, my father are great, Um, and and hence... um, here, um, though, is that we have a supra, uh, supra signifier. We have the uber father. Um, and hence, um, of course, when we have the personification of, of 
of all the things that we value, you know, love, acceptance, uh, validation, an inner sense of peace and tranquility. Perfect uh, justice as well, I would interject. Not like here on Earth. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, to to um, uh, echo your point that these are the positive valences that, that um, you know, good representations can serve uh, the theist. That's right. And you also, uh, you also make an argument for how believers use their belief and faith, uh, their, just the feeling of their belief and faith, they try to posit as being evidence itself for the existence of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting, too, um, because on one hand, you know, especially my, my profession and my, um, you know, my humanistic attitude toward people, I, I'm really not in the business of wanting to negate their internal experiences. Um, on, on the other hand, um, you know, the more rational or logical or philosophical aspect of my, uh, my mind um, will want to ask for some justification or for evidence and um, so it, it is an interesting uh, um, dialectic that gets played out. Um, on one hand, uh, you have people like in the tradition of uh, Aquinas or Calvin, um, where um, the notion that, that God is in us and God is actually implanted in us, uh, the knowledge of, quote, his existence and um, this is uh, typically a faculty or what we can call a, a sensus divinitatis, that we um, intuitively have a, a sense of God's existence. Um, and then you have um, um, contemporaries like um, Alvin Plantinga, who has a, a notion of reformed epistemology, where he would say that, the belief in God is entirely natural, it's intuitive, it's rational, um, and you don't have to have any evidence or argument for it whatsoever. Um, this is where, you know, this is where more of a scientific or rational um, or empirical, uh, you know, stance would be challenged. Um, but if we were to set that aside for a moment, um, you know, some of the oldest uh, metaphysical texts that exist are in the Upanishads and they some of the early verses um, of, of you know in Indian philosophy uh, Hindu philosophy is is to uh, posit the notion of a um, you know uh, ultimate reality and that people have a need for that ultimate reality, they want to embrace it. They want to experience it, um, and that it's the reason why we even have the desire to embrace it is that it must be already there, um, or hence why would we even want it? Of course, this begs the question on what constitutes um, psychological motivations. But um, if we Think of Aristotle's, um, you know, opening line in his Metaphysics that you know all men by nature desire to know. Um, one could claim that that's a natural faculty, uh, you know, a naturalized psychological faculty. So, um, what what is the believer actually getting at when they say, "I know that God exists because I feel it internally," and um, on one hand, I am very sympathetic that something's touching that person. That's beautiful for them. That's uh, the numinous for them and, and meaningful. And who am I to come in and start, you know, ha hatcheting that away with my, uh, you know, Western uh, logical, you know, questions. Um, on the other hand, when we do make um, – grandiose metaphysical statements such as that, we we have to have some, uh, the burden of proof is on the individual to try to justify that uh, the belief in 
or the the knowledge of or the certainty of that there is this independent ontological being that exists outside of my mind, let alone um, how would we epistemologically even know that given that everything we experience is cognitively mediated, uh, psychologically mediated, so we can't even really have a discussion about what exists independent of our mind. But if we were even to infer it, that's exactly what I think theists are doing, that God has to exist independent of our consciousness, um, of human beings, and hence there's the automatic um, uh, you know, assumption in a metaphysical realism. So this is where the, even the re, revised or refined or reformed epistemologist would at least have to attend to. But in the end, they may say, um, and uh, with, uh, you know, with my blessing, so to speak, that um, this is real to me. And this is what makes me feel good. Despite the fact that, you know, we open ourselves up to um, the possibility of a, a radical subjectivism or egoism or relativism or uh, or, or whatever one wants to uh, to say. Right. Um, one of the points you made that I found really interesting is you explain how the psychological processes that allow one's belief to, in fact, be strengthened uh, in the face of the absence of evidence. So that absence, that faith, I suppose, actually... Um, the less evidence there is almost has this um, reversed effect of giving them even stronger faith and stronger belief. Let me try to be sympathetic to that, but first let me be the skeptic. Um, that How is it that we're going to imbue um, something that we cognitively posit, and then all of, all of a sudden the idea becomes an ontological object in its own right that exists out there, independent of us. Um, and I don't need any evidence for it because somehow I just feel it, intuit it, um, it so therefore it is. Well, we just can't, we just can't posit something into existence. We can't think something into being, into actuality. Um, so, I mean, existence is not a predicate. Um, you know, we, you know, um, is, you know, predicating um, something is is um, is something that we have to demonstrate through evidence. And so, um, given that God has not manifested, uh, that has not appeared in some form, has has therefore not become actual. Um, the um, the believer then has to cognitively um, realign themselves with a certain justification of the belief. So the belief um, again could be simply a feeling, um, a resonance state, an intuition, and that's enough for them. That I can't explain it in words. I won't even try, but nevertheless, it is a, a divine, um, you know, unio, you know, mystica. I, I'm in, I, I'm feeling in communion with whatever the Godhead is to be, um, or the presence is to be. Um, h- however, um, you know, again, uh, there's other more convoluted arguments, uh, such as, um, the reality of divine hiddenness. So God doesn't have to appear, doesn't have to manifest, doesn't have to have any kind of naturalized signs in the universe. Um, But God is in hiding. God um, doesn't need to appear. Now now there's all kinds of uh, need to attach certain psychological motives to God's non-manifestation, which of course is simply... A, a projection of our own minds onto our experiences or our ideas. Um, how, how can it be other than that, how, given that everything is uh, psychologically mediated on some level? Do you, think that, um, do you think that that kind of response has increased more recently? Because I'm just thinking that um, you probably don't have to look too far back into our history 
to find a time when people believed they did see evidence of God more frequently because they just couldn't interpret um, weather patterns or uh, other random acts that they or uh, encounters they might have that they might ascribe to a divine sign. So, which I think these days we would be much less inclined to do, just because the the public is generally more educated, has a better understanding of science and weather patterns, for one thing. So, do you think that that kind of habit is on the rise? Have you noticed any kind of a change in that? Uh, well, just looking at popular culture, um, I don't think we're hearing a lot about uh, people um, talking about divine in- interventions and miracles that are happening to them so much now. I mean, at least I'm not I'm not in touch with that um, so much as just the belief, so, just so much as the um, uh, the resurgence of um, uh, you know, let's say fundamentalism in the United States, for instance. Um, of course, you will see this in other parts of the world, uh, in Islam, and uh, to, of course, uh, the chagrin of the religion when you look at the extreme forms such as the terrorist groups that are happening. But that's not really the point. Um, the point is um, it, many times um, um, in the past, of course, people who don't have access to understanding natural phenomenon would be more inclined to import a cer- certain type of hermeneutic or a psychological interpretation that they may not um, even be aware of, but just simply accept as a, a sign of a, of a, uh, of a divinity. Um, and I, you could, you can understand how that would, you know, be a mode of explanation uh, because people, um, who, who don't have access to knowledge or um, our knowledge was uh, more limited uh, in, in terms of our early evolution as a culture and civilization, that they would gravitate toward uh, these explanations. You even have, um, you, know, um, you know, evolutionary uh, psychology and the psychobiology of uh, religious belief, um, uh, um, you know, theories that would want to even explain why would people think this way, uh, such as that when we are, you know, out in nature or in our own, you know, offices or whatever it may be, and we um, we might perceive or misperceive or see things that we think we feel a presence here, may uh, be explained, at least on some level, that we're equipped with some agency detecting mechanism, which is rather fascinating, fascinating that we would somehow project certain teleology into our environment and we see movement and we see images and then we are quick to want to integrate this into some meaningful um, narrative or, uh, or cognitive structure that allows us to function in the moment. And if anyone has been paranoid or, or fearful uh, or been out in the woods and you've imagined things. Um, to me, that kind of helps explain uh, how we might have overactive imaginations at work. Yes, yeah, it really does um, because that's true. When you're in a situation, um, or human beings always have that propensity to find a pattern, perceive a story where there isn't necessarily right. So no, that's good. Makes a lot of sense. Um, which kind of leads into my next question. You you talk about um, how these notions of the invisible yet all-knowing, ever-present being can potentially have really negative psychological impacts beginning as early as, as early childhood. Yes, I, I really, I think this is a contextual or contingent um, uh, question. It depends upon where one was raised, how they were raised, what were they told, and um, uh, of course, um, the you know mis uh, abuse of, of teachings can uh, lead to all kinds of psychological uh, you know conflicts and, and unnecessary suffering. Specifically, um, if you're being uh, you know threatened or, or are made to feel afraid or not safe, let alone when you import certain value judgments 
onto uh, your sense of self as being flawed or sinful um, or in violation of, um, of God's will or, or a number of things. Um, of course, seeing people in, you know, in, in psychological treatment, um, I, of course, will see a certain, you know, certain aspect of the population that have usually come in um, for uh, reasons other than, let's say, the, nor- the normative population. And, and some have presented with extremely traumatized, uh, you know, experiences of the teachings of, um, uh, of their family and their, the church to the point where it's, um, you know, created, um, you know, a, a crippling state of affairs in their mind uh, where they're internally divided, where they feel horribly guilty and ashamed at the same time, extremely paranoid and fearful of, of, of vengeance and, and, um, uh, you know, a great, a great deal of unnecessary suffering because of the teachings. Wow. Well, um, to move on to chapter four, uh, you go on to talk about different socioeconomic conditions around the world that tend to lend themselves to either atheism or religiosity and the positive perspective that you believe secular humanism and spirituality have to offer. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Why, sure. Um, uh, what, what's very interesting um, the fact from a, a epide- epidemiology studies is um, that some of the most poorest, impoverished, um, uneducated, lacking any resources, I mean, most resources uh, that we would just take for granted, have some of the highest faith-based beliefs and practices in the world. And and yet some of the most educated, wealthy, industrialized, democratic, and educated populations um, have uh, higher rates of suicide who, are, who identify themselves as atheists. Um, on the one hand, they have better qualities of life. On the other hand, there's some element of, um, of internal um, depletion and despair um, However, let's say um, certain nations, let's say in Africa, um, where the, the most horrendous social conditions exist, have the highest amount of belief and the less amount of suicide. So it tells us from certain, uh, just certain parts of the world how the need, um, the need to believe is so much higher when one is, um, you know, suffering. When one has uh, less, when one's impoverished, when they're under adversities. And in some ways, it's not so surprising because uh, there's more of a stronger defensive process in people. The need for hope, the, the need for redemption, the need, the promise of when this life of suffering is done, I'm going to get, you know, what I feel I always wanted and deserve. Um, whereas um, more. Uh, non-believing, free-thinking, you know, agnostic, atheist, secular, humanistic folk, um, whatever the hybrid they might fall into, um, they have to kind of face life on their own terms. Um, There is nothing more than this. You have to make life what it is. And and so secular humanism is is becoming more popular um, in certain parts of the world. And I think this is highly correlated with um, democratization, with education, with culture, with um, financial, um, you know, uh, financial success, so to speak. Because even Aristotle would say you really don't have time to um, lead a contemplative uh, and virtuous life unless you have money. Um, you have to have something. Um in order to uh, to prosper, so um, but but secular humanism is interpreted differently by you know any uh, anybody uh, who who identifies in that group, just like certain reformed um, 
religious, uh, you know, institutions would. Uh, so what does it mean? Uh, it's hard to really uh, say what it means for everybody, but um, more of um, a humanist uh, attitude is, is certainly going to be based upon a naturalized view of the world, not a super, supernaturalized or theistic uh, view that, however, let's say we don't believe or don't presume that there is any, anything other than the, the natural world which we find. Uh, the humanist is inspired by uh, art and human compassion and, and ethics uh, and um, li- you know, living in the here and now for people, uh, as well as uh, being informed by reason and science. And um, uh, in a nutshell, it's like we don't need the, the big guy in the sky in order to live a, a good life. And the good life should be enjoyed here and it should be shared and it should be cultivated with um, our fellow human beings. With, and that's an end in itself. Exactly. Um, you also use the, the phrase, uh, in search of the numinous. Uh, which um, correct me if I'm if I'm getting this wrong or if I'm uh, missing aspects of it, but basically the numinous refers to a healthy pursuit of sex. Sorry, refers to a healthy pursuit of self actualization, fulfillment, and secular morality. Um, so, can you explain to our listeners how you see that search for the numinous uh, as working? Well, I'll try. Um, the the notion of the new, I like the term the numinous. Um, it has a certain um, emotional appeal to me. It might not mean much to others, but, but you know, it comes from uh, Rudolf Otto, uh, when he, who was a theologian and philosopher, a German, um, who was very influential in writing in the, uh, you know, the early 20th century, uh, a book called The Idea of the Holy. And uh, despite his theology, he's talking about a particular um, uh, affective and emotional experience that one has in, in relation to what they call the divine. Uh, we can see this coming, um, the notion, of, uh, the, the notion of, of Newman coming from Roman cult philosophy, um, where there is some notion of a divinity principle that animates the cosmos. However, what um, I'm trying to get at more is a sense of um, there is this, um, you know, affective sense uh, of, of awe that we have in relation to uh, some, some type of experience. We may call it transcendental. Uh, we may call it um, uh, you know, the sublime, we might call it spiritual, what used to be called religiosity. And um, and I, I'm not opposed to that term, uh, meaning spirit. I'm not opposed to uh, that or, or the notion of soul, given that this historically comes from the notion of psyche and that that which animates us. So the notion of animus is the, the animator in us is what makes us feel alive. It, what's, it's what gives our sense of self value. And um, so what, what is it when we talk about the numinous? You, usually these are um, aspects of experience that are not necessarily normal, but they could be ordinary. Um, they could be ordinary feelings of uh, transcendence, um, or they or they could have an, more of a, an extra emotional quality that's attached to it, and usually it's one that has a, a sense of urgency to it, and and, and also that the, there's an element of mystery, an element of suspense, and an element of fear that's associated, which gives you a heightened sense of arousal. And so those are the more profound numinous experiences, and of course they are self-determined. Um, when I when I speak of self-actualization, I'm really meaning a process um, uh, a process of of self-discovery, but um, 
you know, Jung called it an individuation process where we're, we're having to undergo our own self-articulated path. And that's to be defined by you, only you. It's a radically subjective enterprise, uh, the pursuit of the numinous. That's excellent. So you feel that that can really uh, address the needs people have for some element of spirituality in their life, but it's flexible. Did you say that's right? Yes, I, I do. Um, I, in many ways, um, it is entirely idiosyncratic, but at the same time, um, it it can be identified in certain patterns or in certain identifications that other can share. There's shared meaning about certain events. Uh, when people say... Um, uh, you know, uh, spirituality is really about the quality of lived experience. It's really about what I want or feel or I, I you know, I'm, I'm pining for. I'm, uh, I'm seeking out ultimately. I don't know what that is. Uh, I'm just, you know, fumbling through ecstasy, so to speak, and I'm <laughs> hopefully I'll land on it someday. But, you know, it's the pursuit that counts. Wonderful. Were there any other points uh, from your book that I've missed that you wanted to have a chance to talk about? I think there's so many. Um, I, we've co covered a lot of ground here. Uh, hopefully, um, the the message, I think, of the certain overall messages here is that um, despite uh, despite the, the fact that um, I don't believe um, a supreme being exists, and, and despite the fact that we have certain psychological needs and motives and conflicts, both for and against belief, and that they, they often serve many overdetermined um, uh, motives and, and um, uh, you know, um, desires and, and wishes, that in the end, um, I think one, one needs to um, be in touch with that aspect of themselves that, that wants to, to feel more alive and feel more in touch with, um, you know, with, with the spiritual. And one does not have to have any belief whatsoever in a, a transcendent entity in order to achieve that in the here and now. And, and ultimately, you know, this makes kind of life an existential quest. Um, and, you know, spirituality can be achieved um, in very concrete ways uh, through the way we wish to live our life. Um, whether that be living life artfully, we are, you know, developing a sense of um, ethical self-consciousness that we have toward our environment, um, to our ecosystems, to our societies, to the concrete human beings and people that we encounter every day, our families, our children, our friends, the notion of friendship. There's like so very few people that actually have true friendship, if you look at it. it they, they seem to be more about social acquaintances and appearances, but, but not in a, a really deep, lived and loved feeling. Um, the, the notion of, um, of pursuing the you know, whatever floats your boat. Um, and if it has value to you, that's important. And, and so I think this is where both the re the person of, re you know, the religious um, as well as the secular person share a common denominator. And that is um, what ultimately they feel and the quality of their, their lived existence is ultimately what matters. Oh, I think that's such a positive, wonderful uh, note to end on, um, because I just think that that's such a good message for anybody who's trying to find their way out of uh, of a religion or religious practice that they might find a weight or a bit of a burden on them. So thank you so much for that. Uh, and thank you, John, uh, for giving us your time today. So before we go, uh, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you're currently working on. Uh, well, sure. Um, my next book um, is uh, also um, a grave matter. <laughs> it's <laughs> okay. uh, 
It's on the question of human extinction. Oh. Because I'm very concerned about the way the world is these days. Uh, everything from our, you know, our, our global ecological crisis with um, the way we are destroying our planet uh, to, um, you know, the, the simple bystander effect that we're doing nothing as nations to uh, sub- subvert this disaster that we all see is coming. And people are living in a denial um, or they're dissociating from these realities. It's as if um, we know they're there, but I, I just can't deal with it. Um, and not to mention uh, the fact that we're heading toward a severe overpopulation boon where we'll have predicted about 10 billion people on this planet in our lifetime where resources um, will be much more scarce in terms of water, in terms of food, land to to grow food, uh, land to put people, not to mention the anathema of evil and uh, and all the human aggression that we see uh, being played out um, uh, throughout the globe, that it it really is an ominous time, and um, I'm pessimistic uh, in the sense that we may be living in the end times. And so um, not in any uh, biblical sense, uh, but um, uh, in a sense that deserves, um, I think, a serious study. One might call it the humanist version of the apocalypse. Sorry. (laughs) Okay. Well, my goodness. Uh, Maybe we'll have a chance to meet again and discuss that one as well. So um, I want to thank you very much for being on the show today, and I really enjoyed it. I hope you'll come back. And thank you very much, John. Goodbye. Thank you. And thank you for listening to the podcast today. Once again, I'm Carrie Lynn Evans, and I've been speaking with Dr. John Mills about his book, Inventing God, Psychology of Belief, and the Rise of Secular Spirituality. You can find out more about John at his website, www millspsychology.ca Be sure to like the New Books and Secularism channel on Facebook and follow the New Books Network on Twitter, where you'll see every time we post a new interview. You can also find me on Twitter at Carrie Lindland. That's at C-A-R-R-I-E L-Y-N-N-L-A-N-D where I generally post about science fiction and science and tech news. Did you find this book fascinating? Let me know. I'd love to hear what you think. Goodbye, until my next conversation about new books in secularism.